I think looking at the research, somewhere upwards of 80% of people who identify as sex addicts come from overly rigid and cold and controlling types of families where there were very overly rigid boundaries or parentified children, so kids who were asked to play the role of a parent, maybe even a surrogate spouse. And when we look at the role of trauma, it's typically really prevalent in the landscape of someone dealing with sex addiction. That's not to say that it is wasn't in a hundred percent. You may have had a great childhood and never had issues. There's a case to be made that the types of pornography that people consume or the behaviors they do might contribute to a moral injury, which would also lead to trauma. Just realizing that, oh, that's not, that's not who I want to be, or I feel intense, deep shame about that. And just the act itself of accessing it can lead to trauma in and of itself. So mm. whether you get it growing up or whether you get it in the outworkings of the, the behavior, there's trauma involved. And one of the things we call out in the work is identifying how your trauma led to those scripts and those belief systems. Like if people knew who I really was, no one would love me. I don't deserve love. I don't deserve connection. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, a show from the humans at OnSite. If you're new to this space and just beginning this journey, we hope these episodes are an encouragement, a resource, and an introduction to a new way of being. And if you're well into your journey and perhaps even made a pit stop at OnSite's Living Centered program or one of our other experiences, we hope these episodes are a nudge back towards the depth, connection, and authenticity you found. In this season, we sat down with a dozen of our favorite experts and emotional health sojourners to dig into the topics that are top of mind for all of us. Transition, relationships, trauma, just to name a few. Part practical resource and part honest storytelling that will have you silently nodding along, me too. This podcast was curated with you in mind. So with that, let's dive in. Hi there, Mackenzie here. Thanks so much for joining me for a special bonus episode with on-site lead clinician, Carlos Martinez. Today, we're diving into a somewhat taboo topic. Carlos joins me for an authentic and informative conversation about unhealthy sexuality and intimacy. We hope that this conversation sheds light on this topic and brings with it empathy, grace, and hope. We also hope to leave you with resources and encouragement, whether you are struggling yourself, are the partner or loved one of someone who's struggling, or are a mental health professional working in this space. Throughout the conversation, Carlos offers insight into our upcoming program for men struggling with sex addiction and problematic sexual behaviors. Our Healthy Sexuality and Intimacy Workshop is happening March 13th through the 20th on our California campus. The Healthy Sexuality and Intimacy Program is a week-long workshop that offers a unique therapeutic experience for men who are coping with unresolved painful past events through unhealthy sexual addiction and patterns. By creating a safe space for healing, we guide and encourage you to move from a place of shame and isolation into greater intimacy and connection with yourself and others. We believe that individuals will walk away from this experience with a better understanding of how acting out through these behaviors relates to the pain of their past and how it impacts their present sexual and relational lives. 
We hope that they'll have a deeper understanding and knowledge of addiction and codependency and leave with the skills to foster healthy intimacy and connection. To learn more about this experience, our skilled admissions team would love to connect with you on a confidential call at 1-800-341-7432. All right, let's jump into this conversation with Carlos Martinez. So, Carlos... I would love for you to just kind of set the stage for this conversation for us around healthy sexuality and intimacy. I think even just saying those words, a lot of us have a response. And so how do we distinguish and even define like what is healthy around our sexuality and what is to be considered disordered? How do you even enter someone into that conversation? Mm. Wow. Great question. When I think about the healthy aspect of this, I I think about something that is out in the open that can be discussed. Hmm. So in relationships, it's about consent. It's about, do I have the full picture of what's going on here? And Mm -hmm. are we on the same page? And if we are not on the same page, then that's unhealthy. There's a saying in in 12-step, you're only as sick as your secrets. And I think there's some truth to that, that there is an understanding that if if we can bring all this out in the open, I don't know what people's preferences are generally. Uh, you're allowed to, your own prefer- to have your own preferences. The issue is, do you have the same preferences as the people you're in a relationship with? And if they don't know what your preferences are and you're not communicating that, then you're t- tending towards the unhealthy. And then on the far end of the spectrum, where someone is engaging in behavior that is secretive, that is kept in the dark, that takes a lot of justification and reasoning and like thinking through, oh, you know, they'd be fine with it or whatever, then Mm. you can know that we're veering into the unhealthy camp of it. And that's one of the biggest indicators, I think, is the ability to talk through, hey, this is my process. Many of us growing up in families where one of the rules was don't talk might find this incredibly difficult. And even even if talking about it is difficult, not being able to talk about it is one thing. Keeping things in secrecy and then developing shame around it, that's when we start looking at the unhealthy part of it and the paradigm. And you are saying a lot in the people that you're in relationship with. So is it possible to have unhealthy, like sexuality separated from other people? What does that look like? You know, there's the the topic and issue of people engaging with sex workers and mm-hmm. people having behaviors that are might include pornography or uh, different types of lifestyles. That That's one thing. Mm-hmm. If it lines up with who you are and who you want to be and who you can want to continue being. What I'm hearing you say is it's an agreed upon relationship. I remember hearing about infidelity and it being defined as a breach of a agreed upon agreement or function right. in which way we're going to be in this relationship. Right. And so what you're saying, like preferences, how someone's identifying within their sexuality is something that gets brought into this conversation because it's important to make sure that you're having clear communication and an agreed upon established consensus, right? Yeah, for sure. And if there's disagreement either with the partner that I'm with or if there's disagreement internally, you know, because the internal disagreement based on my values, my mores, how 
I was raised, some people, especially coming out of evangelical world, starting deconstructing, yeah. you know, looking at different options in terms of sexuality, that, that's for people to explore and uncover. The unhealthy part is where shame comes into it. So if I'm living in such a way as I would feel ashamed about what I'm doing and allow that shame to keep me from connecting with others, then we're looking at getting into trouble. Mm -hmm. Mm, Thank you. That's really helpful to kind of set the stage and how we determine this. So, Carlos, I'm wondering if you can kind of take us another level deeper and talk about how sex addiction can get in the way of intimacy with ourselves and intimacy with others. Yeah. So if, if intimacy is into me, you see, and into me, I see, mm. then sex addiction is essentially the opposite of that. It is not allowing anybody to see me. It's mm-hmm. seeing the other as an object and an object to get my needs met for sexual gratification. And there's a lot of internal wrangling that needs to happen in order for someone to lose sight of who they are and their relationships and how that affects other people around them. There's a lot of self-talk and I deserve this or this is the only way I'm going to get my needs met. Or, you know, if people knew how good this was, they would never ask me to stop, you know, a lot of those lines that would come from the typical addicted mind. Intimacy would say, hey, let me know what's going on. Sexual addiction would say, you're just a thing, essentially. I'm going to use you to get my needs met. And the problem with that is that if that's happening in a relationship, then the other partner typically is not aware that that's happening. And then if one of the partners is going out, if the sex addict or the person with problematic sexual behavior is going outside of the relationship to get those needs met and the other person doesn't know that, then we're looking at now four layers deep of additional issues and problems. Yeah. And so I would make up that it would either reach a head point where I feel incongruent with, like you said at the beginning, who I want to be and who I want to live my life, you'd feel incongruent or you'd feel this incongruency with your partner and it would lead to some type of recognition and desire to change or it could have dire consequences. And like, what does that look like? Kind of those moments where something has to change. Yeah. So typically by the time I see people, I have seen people in, in our healthy sexuality and intimacy program, that's when the jig is up Yeah, and they're in that really crucial time period of maybe a week to three months in that that first emergent time where they they got found out using corporate servers or Mm. a secret phone was found or hey i found this message on your laptop or your ipad or huh this is a new account i don't recognize this account so so Mm -hmm. many of those things that get hidden like we talked about the, the beginning of the, the recording, like it's, it's about openness rather than secrecy. Yeah. When people get found in the secretiveness, that's when things kind of blow up and that's when they will be drawn or sometimes compelled or strongly mm-hmm. encouraged to do something like seek treatment or see a therapist or go to a 12-step group. What I'm gathering is even just 
from like a soundbitey standpoint, if it's hidden, it's probably a problem, right? If I'm yeah. feeling compelled to keep it a secret, to not reveal it, that's probably a good barometer for, hey, this behavior is not in congruence with me. Yeah. And I would add the element of shame to it. If it's mm-hmm. hidden and there's shame around it, then it might be causing problems. I, when working in the addiction field for many years, I've never found it instructive to call someone like an alcoholic or a drug addict or a sex addict. It's not helpful. It's not useful. The person in those behaviors can very easily say, well, I'm not an addict. I'm not an alcoholic. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. I remember doing assessments for a drug in the drug and alcohol field and sometimes one of the questions is, so how much are you drinking? And I know we're on the right track when the answer is <laughs> not as much as my neighbor. I'll tell you that. <laughs> you know, if we can point to the other person, if it's maybe an imaginary person or a real person, we can point to and say, whew, man, I mean, mine, you know, eh, maybe, but not like that. Not like those people. You know, I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not doing what those people are. And that's why I keep the focus more centered on is this causing problems for you. Mm. And usually that first like denial is so important to keep us safe yeah. from recognizing what's painful, right? It's, it's indispensable in terms of keeping us from admitting something that's way too painful. But that first layer of questioning around just causing problems for you, the first layer may be, no, absolutely not. Really? What's your partner think about it? Well, they hate it. You know, they, they can't stand it, but I'm fine with it. Mm-hmm. So usually if someone's coming to a program where it's focused on their ongoing behaviors that are causing problems, steering away from addiction, sex addiction, but ongoing problems that are that are causing deeper rifts in their relationships with others and themselves, then mm-hmm. that's a problem. It, it's an old adage in the in the addiction field, that which causes a problem is a problem that may be Father Martin, I think. And you have often talked about that the end result of this is disconnection with ourselves and disconnection with the people in our lives. What does that process look like to start to form reconnection? I'm thinking from a partner standpoint, how do I raise the red flag? How do I maybe have this conversation with someone if we have concerns? If you're saying the first response is going to be denial, you know, what what would be your encouragement to someone who's in a relationship with someone who maybe is exhibiting some of these behaviors and there's some concern? I would say that it it's the job of the person who's in the behaviors to keep those behaviors going and to create a smoke screen around them. Uh, what that that wasn't my phone. That wasn't an email. You no, that was, you totally misread that. She wasn't hitting on me. Whatever. It's the job of the person on the receiving end to call it out and to trust their gut and to say whether it was or wasn't. I'm not comfortable with it. And to start drawing and maintaining your boundaries mm. around that. So much of work in this field is about bringing people back into awareness of their boundaries. I think it was uh, Patrick Carnes who said that sexual addiction is a, it's a disease or malady of profound boundary violation, hmm. usually starting with some sort of abuse or some sort of mixed message from growing up. So there were profound boundary violations in the home 
and then that gets translated into profound boundary relations with others. And so if you're a partner of someone watching this happen, it would be important for you to say to yourself, hey, that, I'm actually not okay with this. You're telling me everything's fine, and it may be, and I'm not okay with it, and I'm allowed to not be okay with it. That's so interesting. I think it even brings me back to the front of the conversation of how important we need to know, like, where are my boundaries? What are they agreed upon? What are the things that I feel okay about and don't have shame around and aren't hidden? I mean, that's a big call for someone who's in a partnership. I imagine that that is hard to then have that conversation or even just to stay firm because it's uncomfortable to confront that. I think if you are in a relationship like that, you want to believe and want to have the shadow of a doubt because it's easier, I would imagine. Yeah, well, especially if the one person who's in it, who's, who's doing the behaviors, is in denial themselves, then they're going to need everyone around them to co-sign that. You mentioned a couple of things like, oh, that wasn't an email or that wasn't this. If I'm a partner on this end and I'm mm -hmm. feeling that gut feeling and I want to trust my gut, what are some of the things that I might be on the lookout for to use as like, yep, this is confirmation of what I know is happening? First, bring it to the conversation. Hopefully you can talk about how you feel about what, what's happening. If that is shut down and there are things that continue to go on that are raising your red flags, you, your red flags are yours and you're allowed to check them out. And I would say get support. I'm, of course, I'm super biased about this, but um, <laughs> uh, therapy, 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 you know, and maybe even someone who has experience working with people who are engaged in sexually problematic behavior, maybe a CSAP that's a certified sexual addictions therapist or someone who works with partners of sex addicts or people with problematic sexual behavior. And you're allowed to explore that and, and say, hey, I'm not okay with this. So what our encouragement basically is, is for the partner to be doing their own work because that's the only thing that they can really, they can control, right? Of how am I responding within myself and how am I supporting mm -hmm. myself? If I'm on the other side of that, if I'm someone who feels like they're trapped in sex addiction, what would be your first encouragement to them? as they're kind of wading into awakening to this, having that moment like you described in one of our healthy sexuality and intimacy programs where the jig is up. Yeah, there's so much hope out there. And there's mm. so much available help. Mm. There are free resources. There are 12-step programs. Uh, there are super low-cost programs. Uh, one called joinfortify.org, which is... Uh, helping people get off of internet pornography. There is Pornography Anonymous. There's Sex Addicts Anonymous, Sexaholics Anonymous. There are so many different 12-step groups, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. So first thing would be maybe check out some resources and explore. There's a great inventory you can find with the with ITAP that does uh, CSAT. Let me... So... ITAP is the International Institute for Trauma and Addiction Professionals. Mm. They have an assessment online that you can take for free to see if your behaviors are leading towards 
sexually problematic or even sex addiction level type of behaviors. And there are programs that you can go to to work on your issues and, and typically is trauma-based. Not always, but typically it's trauma-based to help work through these issues. So obviously we have our uh, healthy sexuality and intimacy, but there are others as well. I would I would encourage anyone struggling with these to take a look at what it's what is this costing you? Mm. And are you able to live with what this is costing you? I know there's a lot of denial around it's not that bad and I can manage it and this will be the last time and no, this will be the last time. Okay, that's, um, yeah, I hate that I did that, but I promise this will be the last. So if you keep on set changing the goalposts and mm. you generally feel horrible or ashamed about what you're doing, then there absolutely is help out there. Would you say more about that trauma piece? Are you saying that the behavior you're doing is causing trauma to yourself and your loved one and you're going to be working on that? Or are you saying there's often some pieces of trauma in our stories that we haven't reconciled? Or is it yes and both? Yeah, well, it's a yes and both. And I think looking at the research, somewhere upwards of 80% of people who identify as sex addicts come from overly rigid and cold and controlling types of families where there were very overly rigid boundaries or parentified children. So kids who were asked to play the role of a parent, maybe even a surrogate spouse. Yeah. And when we look at the role of trauma, it's typically really prevalent in the landscape of someone dealing with sex addiction. That's not to say that it is present in a hundred percent. You may have had a great childhood and never had issues. There's a case to be made that the types of pornography that people consume or the behaviors they do might contribute to a moral injury, which would also lead to trauma. Just realizing that, oh, that's not, that's not who I want to be, or I feel intense, deep shame about that. And just the act itself of accessing it can lead to trauma in and of itself. So mm. whether you get it growing up or whether you get it in the outworkings of the, the behavior, there's trauma involved. And one of the things we call out in the work is identifying how your trauma led to those scripts and those belief systems. Like if people knew who I really was, no one would love me. I don't deserve love. I don't deserve connection. But also, I'm the only one that can rely on me to get my needs met. Mm. That's huge in a relationship. Imagine being in your partner and you're in what you assume to be a good faith relationship and your partner has the, the deeply embedded belief system that sex is my most important need. And if my partner isn't going to give it to me, then I'm allowed to do anything I want to get that need met. Well, that, that's, that's huge. Hmm. So much of this conversation feels really individualized, but then all the resources that you're talking about really are bringing in community and bringing things into the light and revealing, as you're saying. Can you talk about 12-step and our group process, maybe even why we have structured it the way we have to be around other people who are in a similar place, who understand it and the power of group? Yeah, I think right now what we would call the the great masters, like Peter Levine, Bessel van der Kook, they would all 
collectively agree that the trauma happened in community. And so it happened around the people in part of our growing up, the healing needs to happen in community. And there is nothing like being in a group of, uh, and typically the, the healthy sexuality and intimacy right now, this component that we're doing is a, a men's sexual addiction group. And yeah, there's nothing like telling your story to a group of men that has always involved deep shame, a lot of trauma, yeah. beliefs that if people knew who I was, they would reject me. And to say that in a group of men who know that experience and that at the other end of it be received with, oh, I thought I was the only one. Welcome. Mm-hmm. And you're not a monster. What I was thinking on the front end of this is we might have this deeply inherent belief that what we have to show or what we have to tell or reveal would almost be shocking and mm-hmm. feeling like, well, no one else can understand this. And I, I imagine you sitting in that seat as a, as a guide, as a therapist in a setting with someone, and then also having all of those men around you, it would be this weight lifted off of, oh, actually, you're, I'm not shocking you. This isn't so out there and I isn't how I've built it up in my head. I've heard that from different people. And is that an experience that you, that feels true? Yeah, yeah. The biggest fear in that room is that they're going to be judged. And usually some of the greatest healing comes from telling your story and realizing, hey, we, we see you. You know, yeah, you made mistakes. You're human. You did some wrong things. And that doesn't nullify who you are as a person. It's huge. When we started having this conversation and preparing to talk about this topic, you said what you would want people to know inherently is that there is hope, but it's going to require some uncomfortable uh, process, right? Mm-hmm. And so can you say more about that, of holding those two things of the way out is through? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think all healing is, is painful. Yeah. Healing is inherently painful, especially when we start... You know, denial is a powerful numbing agent. And think of it as Novocaine for the soul. To go into the depths of some of the behaviors that people will do and the lying and the stealing and the cheating and the setting up different accounts. And I mean, I've heard stories like, so my partner wanted to track me. So I got a burner phone and then I got a dummy account for the burner phone. And then I left my original phone in my car at the club where I said I was going to be. And I took my burner phone and then all my calls were forwarded, like the, the energy that people will put into being someone who they just, they don't want to be. And yeah, the addiction, when it goes into a like full blown addiction, it becomes a hydra. Mm-hmm. You cut one head off and two more sprout up in, in its place and coming out of denial Admitting that, yes, I did. I said that. I bought that. I lied about that. I stole that. Can be painful. And again, if we're only as sick as our secrets and if we can be vulnerable enough to say, yeah, this is who I am. It's part of the 12 steps. Made a um, searching and fearless moral inventory of the exact nature of my wrongs. So doing the work of believing that 
there is recovery available, that there's, there's something greater than me that can help restore me to sanity because some of these behaviors that, that we will do, it, it's insane. So Carlos, we've talked about a lot of different resources that you could seek if you identify like, hey, I've got some problematic sexual behavior. Maybe it's leaning into sex addiction. You've talked a lot about those and we'll, we'll link some in the show notes. But in particular to the program that we're bringing back, our Healthy Sexuality and Intimacy program, who is the right candidate for that? Someone who finds themselves caught in that place of they're just profoundly disappointed with where they're at. Mm-hmm. and want something bigger or better. You know, we, this would not be the program, for example, for someone who is engaged in, you know, anything that would be illegal, child pornography, you know, something that yeah. is reportable. That's something beyond our scope. Someone yeah. also would benefit, someone who would benefit from long-term impatience, like a 30 or a 60-day treatment center. This is for mm-hmm. someone who maybe has been to a few meetings, 12-step meetings. Maybe they haven't. Maybe the whole world of 12-step is new to them. What they find, it, and historically, the people we've worked with have been people who find that things are just out of control. The things that they have been trying to fix it are not working. And job, wife, husband, kids, parole, parole, probation officers, all those people are saying, hey, you need to get it together. And they've tried. And someone who is ready to start delving into some of the things that got them there and willing to look at, okay, what do I need to do different now? And as we think about people ending up here, how would a mental health professional like identify, hey, my client would be a good fit for this. What would be your encouragement to them? Yeah, for someone thinking about it, there's something that we are doing that's different now, and that is we're referring people to ITAP's website. There's a resource page that if you go through our admissions and if you're really looking at it, we're encouraging people to take a free online assessment. It's Something like 50 questions, it'll take two seconds max to fill out each question, if that. And at the end of it, you'll get a result that in in at least psychology world, it's a big deal. It is both valid and reliable for those who are Mm. keeping score and and taking notes. A valid and reliable test that is free and short. Mm. And that's called the SAST. Um, We'll have a link to it in the show notes, I think. Uh, And the SAST will give you a score that if you score above 16, 17, I think inpatient treatment is recommended. If you score above six, that's problematic sexual behavior and anywhere in between. And so that's something that would be, if you're really like, hmm, I I think I want to look at this and, and look and see, is this a problem for me? It's free. It's short. It's available. Hmm. That's good and kind of give you a baseline. Mm -hmm. And we're saying if you're getting a 16 or 17, the level of care that we can provide you is probably not there. But if you are somewhere between that 6 and 16, that feels. 
Yeah, and I would I wouldn't say that sixteen seventeen is off the table. I think it's okay. also important to remember we're we're offering a week long workshop, and we'll give you our best. And you might want to consider something more in depth. Maybe go do the more in depth thing, and then come back when more of the emergent issues have come up. Because if you're scoring nineteen twenty, if you're scoring in eighteen nineteen twenty, then your life is probably deeply disconnected with who you want to be and what you're wanting to do. I think that the test will really help. But like when something comes from problematic into addiction, what does that process look like? Like, where is that line? Like, when do I know if I problematic or addicted? Yeah, I would say there are a lot of really good tools to help assess Mm -hmm. that. And and it's more than a blurb. But what I would say is... A good indicator is continued broken promises to yourself. One of the things you mentioned in this conversation is the shame around sexuality. And I think a lot of us carry that either coming from an evangelical background or homes where sex was not talked about. And then you kind of go into it and it feels like this secretive thing. I'm wondering um, if there are people out there who identify as Christian or identify in the evangelical space, would this be a program that would be beneficial and helpful for them? As you know, OnSite is um, not faith-based, but faith-inclusive. And so what does the role of faith play in this particular program? So OnSite takes great pains to make sure that people from some faith, no faith, deconstructed faith, different faiths, that, that we really do try to include everyone And, you know, there's some people in, especially if you're coming from uh, evangelical or post-evangelical or a deconstructed world, there were a lot of messages that that I received growing up in in that space that uh, I really, I don't love anymore (laughs) around sexuality and around purity culture. That's a whole other conversation. But wherever you're coming from, we're steering away from the faith-based part of it, 12-step might be brought into it as as part of it, but it's not definitely the whole part of it. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. I feel like it'll be really enlightening and encouraging to people and kind of a first step into, hey, let's do something about this. I'm really grateful yeah. for the way that you have talked about this with so much empathy and gentleness, but also a lot of just encouragement that you can start getting back in alignment and getting congruent and get help. So, what would be your final piece of encouragement? Anything that you'd want to leave us with? Yeah, um, my final piece would be that uh, it takes a lot of courage to take the first step and to admit. And my hope is that if we are talking about addiction, we we mention sometimes there are glimpses of sanity. There are just moments of sanity that that reach through. And mm. my hope and my deepest compassion would be that you would let yourself reconnect with those moments of saneness and reach out for help ask for help so many resources free online people who can connect you with resources therapists uh, programs thanks carlos Thanks for listening to this episode. If you or someone you love is struggling with unhealthy sexual addiction or problematic behavior, we've provided several resources in our show notes. Additionally, our expert admissions team would be more than happy to connect with you on a confidential call to connect you with the list of potential resources, including OnSite's Healthy Love and Sexuality Program offerings this year. 
Head to experienceonsite.com to learn more or connect with our team at 1-800-341-7432.